care for all Rose can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. Uh, we are still the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. Uh, I'm Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. Um, we have such a cool episode this week that I can't believe it, but um, Kate, let's let's do a morale check-in. How are we? You know, this is like the week that I feel like the kind of like uh, quarantine brain has really fully set in. I just feel like very, um, I just feel really foggy and kind of like, what what are we doing here? I, I don't know. I think this is week 10. I know at some point uh, it was day 69 of quarantine and I commemorated that day. With, you know, that was a special a, day. With a nice. Um, yeah, with a nice. Exactly. Yeah, um, no, that's good. Um, yeah, I, I kind of keep hitting refresh on the different, uh, rollout plans for things opening back up, but I also have, I, I don't know, I don't see, it's just not, it's not going to happen in New York City anyways for, for a little while, um, but God, would I love to get a haircut, I I am like everyone else, I just want a haircut, and, uh, my hair is down to my waist now, and it is just, like, full horse girl. It is... See, I feel like your hair being horse girl is not... Like, I feel like horse girl is, like, a, a slightly kind of maybe halfway down your back. I feel like that's a horse girl length hair. I feel like um, fully down to the waist is, like, Manson family girl Okay. Um, situation. It does go most of the way down my back when I'm... When I have it behind my... Um, behind my shoulders, but it's just, it's getting untenable. Yeah. I mean, whatever it is, it's culty. It's, it's making me look, um, definitely like, like a witch, but not a cool one. And, um, I would love, I don't know. I, I also like impulse dyed my hair pink right before, um, <laughs> last week. And then immediately remembered that we were interviewing Senator Ed Markey on zoom. <laughs> Wait, is it, was your hair pink for that? It was, but I just pushed it behind my shoulders during the interview because I was like so uh, self-conscious and I didn't want the first time I ever spoke to Senator Ed Markey to be with pink hair. <laughs> Not I, that I think I he would have cared. It at all. I think that he, yeah, no, I, I like positioned it during the interview so that you wouldn't be able to see it, but um I don't know. It's kind of fading now, but it was very pink. Um, anyways, uh, yeah. I thought you looked cute for that interview. You were wearing a suit. I was wearing a blazer. I really, I mean, I usually, Kate knows because she sees me twice a week, every week, that I usually wear like sweats or whatever. I'm, I do not look cute, but I really tried to look nice for a distinguished guest. And yeah, he was. Uh, he was so, so great. I still can't believe that this interview happened. And I just want to thank the people who from uh, Senator Markey's team who reached out to us and made this happen. And that is um, Taylor St. Germain and Paul Bologna. I want to say his, his last name is pronounced. Um, but thank you guys so much. We uh, yeah, this I mean, this episode is is one for the books. I think Kate, you and I have been doing this show for almost 
a full year now, and we might be coming up on a year. In a year in July, July. I think we started doing it. Yeah, but and we've made a lot of episodes of the show. We've done a lot of leftist feminism. You know what I was thinking, man? I was thinking about like. I was. This is what I was thinking about earlier today. That in like February, I was like, "You guys, the future could be, you know, bad. There's a chance that Bernie Sanders might not win. Yeah, <laughs> we could end up with I don't know, Pete Buttigieg being the president. <laughs> and that was like literally like my conception of a bad future. Uh. I mean. It's just so much worse than anything we thought. I, I cut my own bangs at the beginning of the quarantine, and I, I, I cut them unevenly, so oh, I kept cutting so them shorter I. and shorter. Yeah. Uh, and they're finally kind of growing back to a normal length, and they're still uneven, but I am very uh, gun-shy about uh about cutting them again you know i mean what what leftist feminist among us has not cut her own bangs in quarantine that's what i want to know because i've certainly done it a few times now and they have been uneven the whole time and uh yeah would love again would love a haircut but i'm not gonna risk the health of others to get a haircut like our friends in the lake of the ozarks <laughs> just out there partying yeah see i mean like that was obviously really dumb what they yeah. were doing i mean th- that lake of the ozark video went super viral and you know i mean it you know i've been watching the show ozark too and you know uh i'm just like all right well you know you guys you guys gotta watch out there you know there's drug trafficking among you so you know uh there's kids money laundering um but it but also like i feel like people are really obsessed with the like social distance shaming on social media and sometimes i think it's legit you know it's like in that situation those people were being pretty reckless but sometimes I see pictures of people at the park, like, and it's like they actually are pretty spread out and stuff yeah. like that. And also, if you're taking, if you're taking a picture from from like a straight on vantage point, it makes people look a lot closer together than they are. And I bet, like, if you had an aerial shot of a lot of those pictures that look like really, um, where people look. F- like they're not social distancing, I bet that they would actually be more spread out than you think. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think everyone, Oh boy, we're just, we're all getting a little stir crazy. We have been for a long time, but especially as the weather gets nicer, it is, uh, we're, we're reaching a breaking point and that's why it was, I mean, I can't think of, of anyone who has more singularly lifted my spirits than talking to Ed Markey for 45 minutes. <laughs> I, I want Ed Markey to win his Senate seat, but I'm like also feeling like I want him to adopt you. Like I, I mean, want him to adopt me too. And I, you know, I don't think he's going <laughs> to listen to this, but if he does, uh, Senator Markey, if you were looking for, you know, a 29 year old adult woman to adopt, I'm available. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, you've I, already been to college. He doesn't have to pay for that. So. I mean, come on. It's uh, I mean, at, you've, at a certain you've point, aged out of the uh, the health insurance. You don't you don't have to be on his health insurance. You're over 26. I mean, know? at this point, it's like you're losing money if you don't adopt me. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> um, it was so oh, fun. Well, what I was I wanted to say one more thing about the social distancing thing, which is it's just like I, I feel like in these 
like in these kind of like social distance like shaming posts or whatever like maybe it is good to sort of i mean you've you've been very pro shaming since the beginning you're a a pro you're pro shame in general uh but you know the thing is is sometimes i feel like the the reality is is like individual actions are like they are part of uh like you know stopping the spread of coronavirus but it's just no substitute for you know voluntary compliance with social distancing is no substitute for a government that is actually doing something and i feel like people are kind of channeling their rage in the wrong directions totally i completely agree with that yeah absolutely uh, and you know, you see it in people who are like not wearing masks and on the beach in Florida. And I literally saw s- somebody being interviewed today. Someone who's probably like around this guy is probably around our age, not wearing a mask at the beach. And the reporter s- is saying, why aren't you wearing a mask? He's like, well, the president doesn't wear a mask. And I was like, yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> is that... When he, when people see him not social distancing and they see him not wearing a mask, it, and there are a lot of people who think, well, if he's not doing it and he's so powerful, I don't have to do it. (laughs) It's like, it's like, (laughs) it reminds me of like that thing that your mom says in elementary school. Like, well, if all of your friends were doing this, like if your president wasn't wearing a mask, would you, you know? um yeah it's yeah i mean it's been really uh i mean he's amazingly stupid i've really enjoyed like uh sarah cooper's um kind of uh lip syncing to his like medical speeches have you seen those those are super funny they're so Um, funny i think she's i think she's gonna be on ellen or something probably she was on ellen oh she was on ellen okay cool yeah yeah uh she's so fucking yeah it's so funny and good but i mean it just kind of highlights the absurdity of like the stuff that he says you know just like i mean he, he just makes up shit that it's just like how how an eight year old would recommend like uh solving this you know like what if we just uh what if we drink bleach and yeah what if we pour bleach on everybody or you know like what if instead of our washing our hands we all just went through a car wash at the same Mm -hmm. time then we'd all be clean uh what if we all just jumped in the ocean together you know know? these these are the brightest minds of our nation and yeah i am so encouraged um yeah there's i don't know if you've seen but there's also this girl who dresses up as Andrew Cuomo and lip syncs all the little clips of him talking about his daughter's boyfriend. <laughs> like about Yeah, I like saw that. Maria his, Dakotis or something? Yeah, like all the passive aggressive comments he makes about his daughter's boy his daughter's boyfriend. That was really make me laugh. You know, yeah. we got we gotta have these little these little moments of joy uh, yeah. in despair. Yeah, um, you know, the the cats are doing really good uh it's kind of weird um because uh i've I've been like i think i've been so isolated that i'm like triangulating my cats a little bit i'm like talking about what's going on between the cats like to jake and i'm like oh yeah i think like albert is like jealous of pearl and he was like trying to get my attention and i'm just i realize i'm like talking shit about the cats like in the way that i used to gossip about 
friends you know when i was like <laughs> seeing people wow. i'm like yeah like wow he gets so jealous when i pay attention to her and i'm like what am i i'm just i'm 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 uh i'm gossiping about the cats i love <laughs> that so, so, <laughs> the baby kittens um but no they're like <laughs> They're so cute. Uh, it's it's funny because they they have to stay in this one room at night because they run around the house and they're still young enough that they kind of need to be supervised to make sure that they're not, you know, eating all the wires and shit. And they get so mad when we put them in there. I mean, it's like, fine. It's not like a super small room or something. They're just, you know, they got all their food and their litter bugs. I am not abusing animals uh i'm taking very good care of them but they need to go in this little room and it's like it's funny because it's like their version of quarantine and they hate it you know that's like that's their core and there's just like the banging on the door i'm like throwing their bodies against it and stuff like it's i'm i feel like i'm gonna like walk in there one day and they're gonna have little like reopen signs and have started i love it some kind of kitty militia uh, you know <laughs> just it's gonna be like outside the fucking baskin robbins you know? they're um, tiny little libertarian kittens yeah they're libertarians which sucks because i never really you know i just i never thought i would live with with libertarians but <laughs> there's also a i have empathy for them too because there's a bird outside the window uh like a pigeon that's like living on the stoop that's right outside the window and i feel like that would be like if for me there was like a delicious pizza outside my Mm. window at all times and there was just someone bigger than me preventing me from getting it you know you know solidarity with with kittens who can't get out of out of their windows in this in this difficult time yeah all right so should we talk about this uh ed markey ed markey's race a little bit we should um so ed markey has been serving in the u.s senate since 2013 he is up for re-election he and he was in the house before that right was in the house for 36 years i believe representing massachusetts 7th district um and he is facing an unusual uh primary challenge um if you if you've listened to our podcast before no doubt you have heard us uh, express our disdain for representative joe kennedy um and the myriad reasons not not to vote for him um very but, establishment as a, as establishment as you could come absolutely funded by fossil fuel industry i mean yeah. you know you can you can guess the reasons yeah. uh, or listen to some other episodes. But yeah. pick your poison with that guy, my God. Yeah. Um, but he just seems like so nice, too. And I, I, I didn't get to ask him this in the interview because we were running out of time with important questions like Green New Deal. But I just I really uh, w- I really wanted to know if he's like hanging out with like uh, Bernie Sanders, if they're like doing stuff together. Like I have maybe like AOC. Picture- I have seen pictures of them together recently. Are they, uh, man, instead of gossiping about the cats, I just want to gossip about, you know, older men in, in the Senate. The, yeah. the bad boys club of the Senate, which is yeah. Bernie Sanders and Ed Barkey. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, and hopefully, you know, maybe Elizabeth Warren will. Uh, <laughs> I, she's probably friends with Ed Markey. I yeah, mean, I, I would assume. She's on the ads with, our, with Bernie, but. Um, I, I would oh, assume. Oh, yeah, but. 
Yeah, you know, um, but what's one thing that's been really kind of different about this race than other races is like usually the um, establishment lines up behind the incumbent. And in fact, you know, when it comes to like the DCCC, uh, there's an express policy to do that, as we've talked about with a lot of um, the people on our show, the candidates that are challenging incumbents. Um, vendors and campaign staff are uh, blacklisted from working on any DCCC campaign if they work with any of these insurgent challengers. Um, and, you know, there's been a, a lot of instances of uh, prominent Democrats backing, um, you know, very conservative incumbents, sometimes, you know, pro-life uh incumbents you know over progressive challengers that you know were doing really well and the rationale is that they're incumbents but then when you see like ed markey's campaign um a lot of the party is um going going for uh for joe kennedy or you know kind of at best saying silent in this race um and so you know, it's kind of neck and neck. The polls have been sort of going back and forth. But I think one reason we're really excited about this episode is because um, it this is a really, really important race. Um, you know, Ed Markey is just such an asset to um, to our movement and to uh, climate science, really, you know. So um, it's I think it's really important um, if people do have the resources to donate or volunteer. This is a, a very good race to get it involved in because the, the stakes are really high. And, um, you know, he's just uh, it, it's just not going to be as easy for him um, as it has been for a lot of incumbents because he's taking on uh, someone extremely rich and powerful who is supported by a lot of the Democratic establishment. Um, I yeah, I do. I do want to say I think that you know the the D Triple C, which is the Congressional Campaign Committee. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me that they would even try to put their thumb on the scale one way or the other because this is a Senate campaign. This is not. A congressional campaign, but the DCCC has been known to be, uh, you know, <laughs> more conservative, certainly, than we would like very often. And it's really going to be like a boots on the ground campaign that gets that gets him over the finish line and gets him reelected. Um, yeah. And the primary itself is on September 1st. I do want to go through the endorsements that Senator Markey has received because I think they speak volumes about the kinds of people that he attracts and um, the kind of legislator that he is. One of the first endorsements he received was from his Green New Deal co-author, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, he received an endorsement from Elizabeth Warren, the other Massachusetts senator, of course. Uh, Mayor of Boston, Marty Walsh. And the uh, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee Chair, uh, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. And he importantly also received the State Democratic Party of Massachusetts endorsement, um, as well as dozens of Massachusetts state legislatures uh, that I've seen. I've kind of done a deep dive on it. You know, Boston, Cambridge, Springfield, Worcester, uh, all over the state. Um Senator Markey's ties to Massachusetts are are strong and and deep, but 
I think most interestingly and most tellingly, he has received the endorsement of ostensibly every major environmental group, um, both in New England and uh, a lot of the the big ones in in the U.S. at the uh, at the national level, uh, like Cape Air, the Center for Biological Diversity Action, Environment America, the Sierra Club, and of course the Sunrise Movement. You know, this is a guy who has spent the better part of his life fighting for working people in Massachusetts and beyond, you know, first as a state legislator, then in the House, then in the Senate uh, most recently. So if you have a few dollars, please donate to his campaign at edmarkey.com. But what would honestly be even better is if you can get on the phone with your family and friends, uh, if they also live in Massachusetts, uh and talk to them about what is at stake in this election, because I think in terms of choosing between two Democrats, we can often think we're splitting hairs, but I can't think of a more important Senate race uh, that we have to defend in a blue state in a time as precarious as this um, than Senator Markey's. So... And I, and I also can't think of someone who better understands the needs of this moment and represents the values I grew up learning about in Massachusetts than Senator Markey. So uh, in conclusion, folks, throw him a few bucks, make a few phone calls for him. I'm going to be doing the same. Um, and yeah, do, please just do this for me, okay? Um, let's, uh, let's talk about our Patreon for a second. We are making really good episodes on our Patreon. Um, we just interviewed Brian Bahe, uh, who was a really funny comic, um, about, uh, the way that the pandemic is affecting, um, Navajo people and uh, we've had some really good conversations um, recently about uh, how to stop violence in the quarantine without getting the cops involved um, music we've had talks about uh, man we've, we've just covered a lot of really uh, fun stuff we talked about uh, you know how to how to do social distancing without like going totally nuts uh, with uh, Dave Anthony from the doll up we've just had some really really good guests on our Patreon on episodes and you know we know that times are really hard for people uh if it's you know tough for you we totally get it um if you are someone that is you know employed and in a position to become a subscriber for five bucks a month we would super uh appreciate it it helps us keep making the show uh we will always have free episodes every wednesday um and yeah thank you so much to those of you who are already subscribers we just really really appreciate it Thank you. Um, okay. Well, without further ado, I think I think we should we should roll the interview with Senator Ed Markey. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Just listen to Reply Guys. We're we're so thrilled today. We have one of the senators from uh, my home state of of Massachusetts, the Senate author of the Green New Deal. The Sunrise Movement calls him Dad. 
It's Senator Ed Markey. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the show, Senator Markey. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Julia. Thank you for having me on. It's a thrill for me to be on with the Reply Guys. It's a real, you have no idea. This is big for me. Oh, get out of here. I'm telling Uh, you, I'm telling you, you guys are a, you guys are a thing. You guys have, you guys have a whole, you know, whole zeitgeist going, you know, you're, you're in the middle of it. Wow, that's very kind, and that is, yeah. that's the most esteem our show has ever been given by anyone, so we really appreciate it. Um, we, we'll start off with the question that we ask everyone uh, lately, Senator Markey, how is your quarantine going? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, you, you get used to it, right? And, um, and somehow or other, like Q-tips or Oreos, Zoom is now a word for the rest of time, right? Which is going right. to be a word. And it means somehow or other communicating uh, uh, in a way that no one had really ever thought they would. They get used to it and the world's never going to be the, cha- the same. So here I am. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Zoom guy and, uh, and I've adjusted <laughs> to it. And, and honestly, we have to adjust to it because we can very clearly see now who are the essential workers, Mm-hmm. Who are the people who can't Skype into their job, can't Zoom to their job. They've got to show up at the grocery store, show up to drive uh, the bus, show up to be a sanitation worker. Uh, and so, you know, for their sake, we just all have to accept we're not going to get in their way. We're not going to uh, be in any way spreading this uh, virus uh, any more than is absolutely minimally necessary. And so, you know, of all the sacrifices that are being made, those of us who are asked to kind of stay home and protect ourselves, we're making the least of all the sacrifices. And by the way, we can also see that a lot of them are black people, a lot of them are brown people, a lot of them are immigrants, a lot of them are people who could not be seen before. Mm-hmm. It actually took the coronavirus to see who they are. Who mm-hmm. is essential <laughs> that you need yeah. in order to make uh, your life, your 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 uh, your existence possible? So, so I'm I'm adjusting to it, and um, and this is a this is a treat being on with the Reply Guys that probably <laughs> is as a result of uh, staying at home. Yeah, well, I mean. You know, the world's loss is our gain in this case. Uh, we we get to talk to you right now. This is really, uh, this is really such a thrill. Um, you are in the midst of a uh, a primary a re election campaign. Uh, you've been a senator in Massachusetts since 2013, as uh, my understanding, and you were uh, representative in Massachusetts seventh district for. What was it? Thirty six years. Uh-huh. Thirty six years. My goodness me, that is. Wow, that's a long. That's a long time. You are you're Massachusetts through and through. Uh, that's. I'm yeah. I I read a lot about uh, about your work. I just really quickly. I did want to uh, flag a small infraction that I found. Um, I saw that when you uh when you used to drive an ice cream truck that um the lexington police department issued a citation to you uh, because you were <laughs> playing the ice cream jingle too loudly is that is that correct no what what happened was first of all my father worked for the hood milk company so you know a lot of times the job you get 
when you get young is somebody who your father knows. So yeah. if your father drives one kind of truck, then he knows someone. And it's like, Eddie, how about driving an ice cream truck? And <laughs> of course, from his perspective and my mother's perspective, you know, I had to work that 70 or 80 hours every week from Memorial Day to Labor Day to earn my tuition to BC. And I deserved it because they said I played basketball for four hours a day in high school and I should have studied harder and I would have had a full scholarship. And so it's your own fault. So you'd go drive the ice cream truck. So now I'm out in Lexington. I'm going up and down the streets and I'm selling the ice cream. And I came back down and here's the Lexington Green. And here are all these people on the Lexington Green. And I just see like Scrooge McDuck, like dollar signs in my eyeballs. And so I pull up to the Lexington Green and I open up my window and all these people are coming over to me. And um, and there's a police car that pulls in behind the truck and the police officer comes out and he's staring at me. And I only have one kid left to go here to sell the ice cream to. And um, and he says, it's illegal to sell ice cream on the Lexington Green. Ugh. So please stop. So now I had a decision to make. Do I sell to this final little nine-year-old with the money in their hand for a twin fudgicle, or do I just close the window? And out of the generosity of my heart and my desire to get that quarter, <laughs> I, I sold the kid the fudgicle. And the police officer just slammed the window shut and just said, follow me. So presently, I'm over at the police station, and Chief Corps says to me, um, young man, here's the town ordinance. No selling of victuals by means of ringing a bell within the boundaries of the town of Lexington. <laughs> now, young man, it's 30 days. It's a 1798 town ordinance. You broke the ordinance. So that cell over there is yours if you ever come back again. So the <laughs> officer the officer is going to escort you down Mass Ave, down to the Arlington border, and then just don't come back. So the next night, I came back. Uh, I came back, but I did not ring my bell. See, that's what's okay. illegal, ringing of the <laughs> bell. And so you trained the kids, Pavlovian-like, to be negotiating with their mother like an hour before so they have the money ready when Eddie the ice cream man arrives because he's not <laughs> going to be there for long. And so I came down the street, and the bell is going off in the kids' brains. I don't have to ring it. It's already wow. rung. I've been coming every day for my first month <laughs> or six weeks. And so I told all the mothers and the kids, this is the last night. I'm not coming back again. And there was crying and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the next Tuesday at the Lexington Board of Selectmen, I had like 40 mothers and their kids in the back of the room in the five-man Lexington Board of Selectmen. <laughs> And they voted to repeal by a five to nothing vote, the 1798 uh, town oh ordinance. Oh, my gosh. And that was my first political victory. And wow. I said to myself, you know, maybe I have a skill here. Provide, you know, protecting here, especially in Lexington, you know, the constitutional right of every child to spoil their supper by by purchasing ice cream before dinner, you know? <laughs> and so that's kind of what got me off when I was 18 years old onto this pathway, seeing this skill wow. set, which I had. I support full ice cream legalization. Um, <laughs> just for the record, I am 
you know, we just we can't be uh, having laws on the books that prohibit ice cream. Just, you know, putting people in jail unnecessarily when all they're trying to do is have a treat in the summer. And Absolutely. I was the connection. You know what I mean? That, that's yeah. for the kids. Yeah. That, that was like that was a big moment in every day when you're a kid. The ice cream Chuck, Eddie, the ice cream man, ringing his bell like crazy, uh, <laughs> is coming down the street. It can it unleashed a mania when I was when I was. I, I'll never again see the excitement in people's eyes the way I did, and those ten year olds <laughs> running towards the truck with their money in their hands to get their ice cream of choice. So yeah, yeah so that could. was it. So that was the beginning of my career as a politician, I guess, and uh, and so uh, so I moved. Uh, from that to, uh, you know, to the nuclear freeze, which is another version of ice cream, uh, to uh, the Green New Deal. So it's all just kind of... I mean, it's, it's all connected. And, <laughs> but you, you really could not have picked kind of more disparate reactions that you get in your, in your professions than being an ice cream man and being a United States senator. I just cannot imagine that people are running to you with the same sorts of looks of glee on their faces. I mean, they, they should for, for you in particular, they should, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that. No, and I appreciate that. that. I appreciate that. You know, the funny thing is that, yeah, when the, the, the pure joy that an ice cream (laughs) man can elicit is hard to match in any other, any other part of your entire life. Although I will say this, the sunrise movement a slightly oh. older version of that young person. Yeah. When they're at the Green New Deal rallies, when they're talking about a green energy revolution, when when they know that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and I introduced the Green New Deal, it doesn't elicit yeah. quite the same response as a, a creamsicle or a strawberry shortcake <laughs> or a hoodsie does, but, um, but still the... Uh, the energy is there. The passion is there of young people who are saying, you know, that, you're, that they're being handed this despoiled planet mm-hmm. with, and if Donald Trump gets reelected for four more years, almost a death sentence for the right. planet uh, because of a lack of leadership uh, in the United States of America, because we have to be first. We have to be the ones. Mm-hmm. who are leading. We're only 4% of the world, but we have the world's leader. And when Trump sits on the sideline, <clears throat> it gives China, it gives India, it gives other countries a chance to sit on the sideline as well. So so it, for me, this intergenerational compact, the one that I had with kids buying ice cream or the one that I have with the Sunrise Movement, uh, it's the way it has to be. You know, we, we have to partner to build this movement to inject it into the uh, politics of 2020 uh, to make sure that we can make the changes, uh, almost the vaccine for the planet. While we're trying to find a vaccine for the coronavirus, the vaccine for the planet is wind and solar and all electric vehicles and storage technologies for electricity and all new industrial and commercial and agricultural policies that dramatically reduce greenhouse gases. And it has to be done on an intergenerational basis. And it has to be done with young people, in fact, leading the way. They're the ones who are driving this issue now. You know, I am a, I am 100% on board with the Green New Deal, and it seems like a no-brainer to me. I mean, I you know, we get one planet, and hopefully humanity can continue to exist on it. Um, I think I feel really discouraged sometimes that um, the political opposition 
to the Green New Deal just seems to be so um, impenetrable sometimes because it's I mean, obviously, Republicans are just the worst on this. Like they they don't care about, you know, the planet or humanity. You didn't say that. I said that. I'm sure you speak about your colleagues more nicely. But, um, you know, even a lot of Democrats are uh, opposed to the Green New Deal. And like, to me, it feels like a lot of that uh, is the result of perhaps taking money from the fossil fuel industry or perhaps not wanting to uh, upset constituents who work in industries that might be impacted. How do you see us ever being able to get around these political obstacles so that we can save our planet for future generations. No, thank you. Well, you know, there's an old saying that it's hard to understand something when you're paid not to understand it. So when the fossil fuel industry is the principal funder of Republican campaigns, that's, that's the money. Money talks. And, uh, and so the only way that we're going to win is we have to beat them. We just have to beat them. And that has to come up from the grassroots. Uh, and we have to have a Democratic president, a Democratic House, and a Democratic Senate. We have to get rid of Mitch McConnell as majority leader and have a brand new Democratic-controlled Senate. Uh, that's the only way it's going to work. And then we need the new president, Joe Biden, to be up there at his inaugural announcing what the Department of Energy and Interior and Education and Defense and EPA, all of them are all going to do immediately in their agencies. And these big proposals on the automotive center sector, the industrial, the commercial sector, uh, deploying wind and solar, deploying you know new tax breaks for all electric vehicles. And we're just going to move. And then my hope would then be that the president would then call all the other leaders in the in the uh, world and say within a month let's have a summit this is the Mm. issue we've got to we've got to put together a comprehensive plan for the planet we didn't we didn't listen to the science on coronavirus you know that era is over let's listen to the science of the climate crisis and make sure that we put in place the preventative programs which we need so uh, i wouldn't be in this business if i wasn't an optimist and when i'm with the sunrise kids um man i get optimistic I think there's yeah. an army out there. By the way, the same thing is true on gun safety. It's young people who are leading it. Mm-hmm. High school, junior high school, college kids are the leaders in that movement now. So I, that's why at the end of the day, I know that we're going to win uh, because I can feel that passion right now. And then that's what turns it into uh, actual program. So hope doesn't exist alone. Hope only exists because of people's actions and the actions create the hope and the hope creates the solutions. And I think I really do feel that this is an exceptional period of time. Young people are driving it and uh, and that we're going to we're going to do that next year. And that's why I want to go back to the Senate. I want to lead on putting together a Green New Deal that can save the planet. The planet's running a fever. There are no emergency rooms for planets. So the only thing we can really do is give it an inoculation of all these beautiful technologies. And it's not a technological problem. It's a political problem. Yes. We can deploy these technologies. They're there. That's what drives the fossil fuel industry crazy, that they know that they're, they're like um, you know, ancient history. 
once we start to deploy these technologies, uh, and it will have to look to the history books to find out that there ever was such a threat that as climate crisis control by a small handful of fossil fuel. So I think the politics is changing, mostly kids uh, providing the new energy, and I'm, pro- and I'm actually I'm very proud to partner with them. And, uh, and maybe it's the ice cream man in me that identifies with the energy <laughs> and the power of young people. I love that, and I love specifically that, um, and, and I think this distinguishes you from the way that I've heard some, um, you know, some of your colleagues and some, uh, you know, representatives in Congress talk about the the importance of young people. You're not just handing young people the bag. You're saying that this is a an intergenerational partnership, and it's and it's going. And what you're describing is it's going to take a lot of leadership from the people who are currently in power, which is something that we've kind of uh, has been sorely lacking from cer- certainly from the current administration, um, and and an injection of of fresh blood into the Senate. Hopefully. Um, I have been seeing some some maps that that look more encouraging for the Senate than than they have in previous years. So I'm my fingers are crossed as well. Yeah, and and I do think ultimately this this analogy between the coronavirus science and the climate science will come together. Um, Donald Trump is the science denier in both instances. Mm-hmm. I think he's setting himself up for a big fall here by denying both. And uh, and I think we can tell this story in a coherent way, you know, tying together this narrative that, look at the guy already blew it once. The guy already missed the science. He was warned. He blew January. He blew February. We could have avoided a lot of this. Well, we can't blow four more years on the on climate. We just can't because it'll just load the dice up in the atmosphere to wreak havoc on the planet. So I do think it's a good uh, analogy. I think the precedent that was just sent by his by his incompetent inactivity uh, is something that we are going to be able to use very powerfully in this election. It, and the bonus is we create millions of new jobs mm-hmm. as well to deploy these technologies. So I'm very, I'm, I'm an optimist by nature, uh, but I feel it's happening out there. And, and you've been I involved. hope you're right. Yeah. <laughs> me, yeah, me I too. I do not like Trump. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you know, climate science advocacy has, uh, is, is not something new for you. You've been involved in, um, in pushing for alternative energy solutions and um, a way to address climate change for a long time now. How did... How did that start for you as a point of um, of advocacy? Well, you know, I, I, I'm here in my house in Malden, Massachusetts, um, <laughs> which is kind of a blue collar community about five miles north of Boston. Uh, my father's a milkman. Uh, my mother was senior class president in high school, but my grandmother died. So she had to just raise her three younger sisters. So she never got to go to college. So I just grew up right here where... That family got off the boat from Ireland, you know, had five daughters. So I've made it so far nine houses down here in Malden. I'm in the house that I grew up in. Well, four blocks from here is the Malden River. And the Malden River is where all these immigrants, Irish, Italian, Jewish people worked. But they used the Malden River 
as a dumping ground, the coal companies, the chemical companies, all of them. And so when I was growing up, the river was really black with a kind of a purple haze on top of it. And my mother would say, Eddie, whatever you do, don't swim in the Malta River. So, you know, so goodbye Huckleberry Finn, right? And Tom Sawyer, I guess that's not going to be my Malden story here out on the Malden River. And, uh, and she just said it could make you sick. So that kind of was my first time in understanding, actually even understanding environmental justice. Okay, it's in a blue collar community. That's where they put all this stuff. You know, it's not going to be out in the suburbs. So it's mm-hmm. going to be right here. And so, so I actually began uh, kind of thinking about the environment. And I'll give you one good example. So it always drove me crazy that... Um, we could never increase the fuel economy standards of the vehicles we drive. And because we couldn't increase them, we had to keep putting more and more oil, gasoline, unnecessarily into a car. If they're not going to be efficient, then they're going to be inefficient. That requires more and more oil. I said to my father once, what was your favorite car, pup? And he said, well, you know, it was the 1930s, 1934 Model A. I really loved that car. What did it get, pup, for mileage oh about 13 miles a gallon and then i said to him, well how about the ford Fairlane out here and he goes oh about 13 miles a gallon so we hadn't really come that far since the time yeah. my father was a boy so in 2001 i brought the amendment out on the floor of the house let's increase fuel economy standards dramatically you know like double the standard so i only got 155 votes i needed 218 so two years later i brought it out again 167 votes I needed 218. Two years later, I brought it out again, 179 votes. So I just kept advocating each year. And then we won the House and the Senate in 19, uh, in uh, 2006. And uh, George Bush was president, but we were able to pass my legislation. And that got signed by President Bush. And that, along with the California Clean Air Waiver, is what President Obama then used to raise the fuel economy standards to 54.5 miles per gallon. And that's where Elon Musk can check in, because now the standard is so high, you have to completely reinvent the internal (laughs) combustion engine. You know, so that's still, by the way, the single that's still the single largest reduction of any law that ever passed in any country of greenhouse gases, Okay, which I'm very proud of. But I did the same thing in appliances. My law, you know, it was kind of the constitution for appliance efficiency, air conditioning. For example, air conditioning in Texas in the summer is 80% of all peak load is just for air conditioning. Well, what if you double the efficiency? Well, now you need half the number of coal burning plants. And in Mississippi, and in Florida, and in California, right? So it's just, my mother would always say, Eddie, You have to learn how to work smarter, not harder. And then she would say, and if you don't, Eddie, your father and I are going to donate your brain to Harvard Medical School as a completely (laughs) unused human organ. And so that's what energy efficiency is. Just thinking smarter, not harder. So my laws are on the books. And and I know I can do it because I already did it once. But you need to win the House and Senate. And that's why... Julia, you're looking at that map and seeing all of the states that could go blue this year is the key to this. Yeah, I am. I mean, definitely talking to you makes me feel a lot more optimistic. I I do wonder and I hope that it is possible to move Joe Biden uh, a little bit to the left. He has said 
that he opposes the Green New Deal. And um, do you, you think with progressives in the House and Senate that it could be possible to get him to come around on that issue? Well, the good news is he's asked Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to be one of his advisors on climate yeah. change. So that's a very good that's a good deal. Right. And uh, and so from my perspective, when Alexandria and I introduced the Green New Deal, uh, there was a lot of scoffing at it. Uh, a lot of the establishment said, oh, you know, kind of pie in the sky. But what's happened since that then? Well, now everyone has their own Green New Deal. Every one of the candidates running for president had some version of it that they were bragging about. So just think about that and contrast it with 2016, when not one question was asked of Hillary or Trump about climate change. Yeah, It didn't occur to yeah. one reporter in 2016. Well, we've solved that problem. The Green New Deal solved that problem. So when people say, well, it's not the Green New Deal, then we say to you, well, do you believe the science? Oh, yeah, I believe the science. So what's your deal then? What's your plan? <laughs> you, yeah. If you believe in it, if you believe the plan is dangerously warming. So the Green New Deal, we put it out there. Here it is. Here's our plan. What do you got? And we can say the same thing to Republicans, but every Democrat now knows that they've got to have a plan. And it might not be identical, but it's like double in its vision of what people were talking about just one year ago. And that's why Alexandria and I are so proud of it and why the Sunrise Movement deserves a lot of the credit by just being out there, not agonizing, but organizing around this big issue and again, a big <laughs> political payback, too. I love that. I love that, too. It, it is it is kind of wild to think about how fast the conversation has moved, because, I mean, I remember when the Green New Deal uh, came out and I first heard about it, it was just it was so heartening because it was the first plan on the table that was actually that scientists were looking at it and saying yeah this would actually be what we need to do this would be i mean not that there's like not more that could be done beyond that but every other plan that people have put forward uh you know for climate change it, it's just like dramatically different than what dramatically less than what scientists are recommending and that was the first one um that was really ad addressing the crisis at the scale that it needs to be addressed. And, and, you know, now it is true. Like one of the, one of the key issues that people are asked about is, you know, where do you stand on this? You know? And uh, yeah. So that's, and who's that's the pretty amazing. Senator Markey. <laughs> right. No, thank you. Who's the radical Fox news and Trump. They say, Oh, it's socialism, socialism. Look at the green new deal, socialism. And then we say, well, what do you call tax breaks for the oil, gas and coal industry for 100 years coming out of ordinary families' pockets for the wealthiest industry in the history of the world? If that isn't socialism, well, yeah. give us that socialism for wind and solar and all electric vehicles and storage technologies and we will bury the fossil fuel uh, industry within a generation. So from my perspective, who's radical? Who's radical? When all the United Nations scientists say that we need a dramatic change by 2030. When all 13 um, American federal agencies all say, we need a dramatic change by 2030. And then we come along with a plan that says, here's our plan to have a radical 100% clean energy plan by 2030. They go, oh, you're completely unrealistic. And I say, well, they're the radicals, the radicals who ignore every single scientist 
are the same radicals who ignored the science of coronavirus when all yeah. the public health officials. So I don't think it's radical at all because we're just embracing science. We're embracing the experts. We're embracing reality, which is kind of scary. It's kind of a democratic concept, reality. But <laughs> but uh, in in embracing reality, we're uh, we're actually proposing something that can create millions of new jobs and advance environmental justice to take care of frontline communities, make sure that they get to the front of the line of getting these jobs and that we make sure we don't put the pollution in their communities this round, right? That we protect them and we uh, make sure that they just aren't going to be the dumping ground the way they've been since the beginning of American political history. So so I just I kind of like the way the debate has changed and the Green New Deal played a big role in doing it. Absolutely. Um to kind of piggyback off of what you were saying about how this connects to the coronavirus, you have been very vocal about um, the current kind of ineptitude of uh, the response about the um, regarding the coronavirus. And um, your staff actually shared um, a document with me of all of the initiatives that you have put forward since the coronavirus began. And as of a few days ago, it was 162 items long. And I just want to say, why are you trying to make everyone else look bad? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, my wife is a physician and my wife was the assistant surgeon general of the United States and a two-star admiral in in America's public health service. So when you see these officials up there standing behind um, Trump, the public health service, so that was my wife with two stars as an admiral. Wow. But she was also the first deputy assistant secretary for women's health in American history. So she ran all women's health during the 1990s in the uh, Clinton administration. So she said to me back in January, this is going to be bad, Eddie. You should call for a, uh, a briefing of the Congress. This is back on January 23rd by the Trump administration, which I did. So I sent the letter to Trump. No response. Then on January 27th, she said to me, we're going to need a coronavirus czar to organize this. Mind <laughs> you, we don't even have it in America yet. So I called yeah. on him to put together the czar because she said it's coming our way. It's going to be getting off planes, you know, and it's going to be really harming people. And so all along the way, since that first kind of two uh, couple of moments, right through being the first senator to call for Trump to deploy the, the Defense Production Act to produce, to produce the, the, uh, the personal protective equipment, the testing, the contact tracing, which he, of course, ignored as well. Um, I've tried to be a leader on this, you know, uh, being ahead of the curve, looking ahead and leading the way. Uh, no, I have to admit, a lot of it is my wife. It's good to be married to the former assistant surgeon general of the United States. She is definitely <laughs> going to be looking around a corner and seeing it coming. Uh, but uh, but I but that's why I have 161 proposals, you know, that I've been putting out there because I've been working on it every day since uh, January 23rd. Well, thank you for being <laughs> one of the only ones. Thank you. Um, I yes. it. Um, yeah. But. <laughs> So you and Senators Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris uh, introduced a bill to provide $2,000 per person direct cash relief to every American, uh, including children, also um, including people who, even if they had not filed a recent tax return or if they didn't have a Social Security number, um, 
But as as I understand it, this was not included in the Heroes Act that recently passed. Um, so I know that this is still something that you um, you're speaking about a lot, and you really are kind of pushing for it as a way to address Americans' material needs right now uh, in during kind of the biggest unemployment crisis of our of most of our lifetimes. Um, so could you just give us a little status update about um, about that bill? Yeah, well, I think, well, Bernie thinks, Kamala Harris thinks that we're about to head into the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. We're about to head into catastrophic economic conditions for tens of millions of American families for a prolonged period of time. And what Donald Trump has just been is kind of the equivalent of Herbert Hoover ignoring it from 1929 to 1933. And here comes FDR in 1933, and he's got a new deal. And he's actually going to try to put in place these programs that are going to help American families. That's where Social Security came from. That's where so many of the programs came from. It was FDR trying to respond to the magnitude of the problem. So... We know that this whole thing is going to morph into an economic crisis and a health care crisis for people. Already 27 million Americans have lost their health care coverage. 27 million already, and it's only two and a half months in. So we know that there are really uh, dangerous conditions that could be um, hitting families. So what we say is every person gets $2,000 a month, so a couple would get 4000 and for each kid, you get 2,000 more, up to three kids. Uh, and it would go on through the course of this entire emergency. Uh, and then on the other end, for another three months after that. Because the people are going to need money in their pockets for food, for rent, for mortgages, uh, for prescription drugs, you name it. I mean, we're, we're in a situation where uh, without help from the federal government, Family desperation, mental health problems, nutrition problems are just going to become tragic. So, um, so that's what our thought is. Let's just start out where we should, where we'd be forced to wind up anyway. And it's the role of the federal government. Uh, and that's what FDR showed us that we need a new FDR moment here. And that's what Bernie and Kamala and I are trying to do is kind of lift people's gaze to the constellation of possibilities for dealing with this uh, and just say, well, you know, it would be good if we get up a balanced budget, but you shouldn't be balancing the budget in the midst of a crisis. And that's what John Maynard Keynes was saying to FDR in the 1930s. And we just have to channel that wisdom and give the money to the people and let them spend it on their family's needs. And then they'll spend it on the economy. The economy will actually come back faster if we do that than if we kind of engage in benign neglect. Although I would say this, it won't be benign neglect. In Trump and McConnell's world, it'll be designed neglect. We have a plan not to do anything. No yeah. more unemployment insurance, no more help for hospitals, no more money for testing, and it will only turn this into a complete and utter disaster for our country. Yeah, I think I naively... When this crisis started, I naively thought that the debate would be about how much aid to provide to people. But with the Republicans, it's like, should we do something about the coronavirus or should we just let it fly? You know, like it's it's really uh, it's really wild to see, you know, just that 
um, even something like testing, which is <laughs> acknowledged by every medical person as extremely necessary, can be a fight with uh, some of your Republican colleagues. It's mind blowing. Yeah. When I was a boy, Herbert Hoover was alive at my kitchen table in the next room here because my father was still going, Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover, the guy turned this country into a disaster by ignoring the problem. Republicans, they're nice people. You just can't trust them with the government. He would say, you just can't <laughs> trust them to run the government. They can be nice people to live next door to, but you don't want to trust them running the government. Well, that's what's happening right now. The Republicans are saying, not our job. Yeah. Well, whose job is it? How are ordinary families going to be able to deal with a combination of a pandemic and an economic meltdown if the federal government does not arrive to help them? So I think we're going to win this debate. Honestly, I think that um, everyone's going to know someone, sadly, who had coronavirus. Too many people are going to know someone who passed away. Everyone's going to know someone who lost their job. Mm. And... Uh, and I think as each day and week goes by, the Republicans are going to say, you know, maybe we should help those cities and towns. Maybe we should give more money to those individuals. Maybe we should extend unemployment benefits. But it's only be going to be, be because they saw the pain in red state cities and towns. And mm, you would wish yeah. kind of like they missed the coronavirus in January and February, that they acted in anticipation of what was going to be inevitably something that was that was um, uh, consequentially uh, disastrous. Uh, but that's just how they are. They, they can't learn vicariously. <laughs> it's not part of their system. They can only learn it by experience right. it in real time. And we'll have to apply real political pain to them, real political pain uh, to let them know that they're going to pay a huge price if they uh, if if they continue this, if you kick your kick them in the hot, you break your toe attitude about other families. Yeah. And I think that it's so, uh, so interesting that Republicans uh, don't seem to be too concerned about balancing the budget when they're giving a trillion dollars in tax cuts to corporations and the super wealthy. <laughs> yes. yeah, we, we were in the midst of an incredible Obama recovery in 2017. And the thing had just incredible momentum. It was like uh, it was like Trump got to take over uh, a, a brand new used Cadillac of an economy with low mileage on it and jump in the front seat and it just keeps going on automatic pilot. And, and he's going, am I the greatest manager? Am I the greatest Cadillac driver of all time? And then on top of it, he says, and now I'm going to put really high octane gas in this thing by giving tax breaks to all my wealthy buddies in yeah. Palm Beach and in the Trump Tower and just blows a trillion bucks. And then we turn around and say, how about a trillion bucks for the cities and towns of America so that they don't have to lay up firemen, policemen, teachers, shut down schools? They go, oh, do you know what you're asking for? <laughs> and so it's just who they are. They can't help themselves. Republicans, you know, the Republican paradox is that they don't believe in government, but they have to run for office in order to make sure the government doesn't work. Yeah, so yeah. now that now they have the presidency and the Senate, they work very hard to make sure that the government can't work. But 
they're going to hear it from the grassroots of our country. The, the screams, the demands are just going to, you know, come up uh, because the harm, the harm is going to be great. It's just going to be great. They asked the ancient Greek philosopher once, when will we know true justice? And, and the answer was, we will know true justice when those who have not been harmed are as angry as those who have. And I think that's politically what's happening right now. I mm. think a lot of people swing voters, suburban voters, who really have the capacity to make it through this, see all the harm that's being done. And then politically, that's going to create the, the wave that just sweeps them out of office, the Republicans. It gives us a chance to do the right thing next year. And I, man, Fingers I hope crossed. so. <laughs> yeah, I know. I the really, stakes are like, high. The stakes are high. And I feel, yeah, I feel very encouraged talking to you about this. Uh, but yeah, it's, we, uh, Kate and I usually have a, have a, a, a more somber tone when we talk about these things. So I, it's, yeah. it's very refreshing to, to have some optimism about this. Well, you, you have to, you know, you, you get up in the morning, you get the sheet over your head and you go, oh no, another day in Trump land. <laughs> And then what my wife says to me, the former chief of behavioral medicine of the National Institutes of Health, she says, get up, get out of bed, go and fight Trump, go and fight the Republicans, you'll feel better. So at the end of the day, I fight them all day. I feel great at the end of the day. We're battling back at them. And the next morning you wake up, you get the sheet over your head, you don't want to get up, get out of bed, go and work. So you have to have kind of a, a kind of a warrior's mentality in the Trump era. And just say, all right, he's on the clock. It's on the clock. We got we got eight months to go with this guy, uh, but it's up to us. And I, the way I view it is, let's compare ourselves to the revolutionist, you know, the the original colonists. Let's compare ourselves to the abolitionists, to the suffragette movement, uh, to the freedom riders going south, uh, to, uh, you know, the people who were, you know, uh, uh, fighting from Stonewall on for, you know, gay marriage or whatever. You know, there's a point at which they just had to pull the sheet down and get up and we're going to go fight. And then yeah. we win. So the way I view it is liberals usually win. Uh, uh, but. It takes a while for everyone else to catch up. <laughs> yeah. So we're usually right, but too soon. And so you have to wait yeah. for everyone to catch up. And okay, and But you have to make your argument, and then you kind of hit a tipping point. And because you worked so hard, had your energy level high, you hit the tipping point, and all the politics changes just like this. So I'll give you a good example. When I was 1996 in the House of Representatives on um, – on Defensive Marriage Act, kind of like a ban on gay marriage. And there were 435 members of the uh, Congress. And I was one of 67 to vote no. <laughs> so 435, 67 no's. Then Massachusetts changes its law in 2003. And now we're in 2020 and Republicans go, hey, that's a no-brainer. Of course, of yeah. course people should be. And But... This, in 19, you know, 1996, 24 years ago, believe me, there were no parades celebrating yeah. the 67. <laughs> so that's how I view these issues, that you just got to be in there. You're fighting hard. And then when the tipping point happens, it happens big time. It doesn't just happen a little. It's big. 
you know, and then the whole dam breaks and we win again. And we're going to do that on the Green New Deal. We're going to do that on 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 every issue that is, you know, in front of us right now. And uh, and I thank you. I thank you, Reply Guys, for everything you do and just being there. <laughs> As the voices of the people, uh, making fun of, and that's the that's the most wicked, wicked thing that you can do. Nothing, you know, uh, nothing is more powerful than the the old saying that in in jest there is truth. So when you guys like put the needle in, when you guys make fun of the other side and people are laughing, that's when they have lost. Okay. When the joke works and everyone knows it, how preposterous the other side is. So, We want to make sure that we uh, touch upon your upcoming race for re-election to the U.S. Senate because uh, it's a very important one. And you're in an unusual primary race as we head into the fall. Your Democratic primary opponent, Representative Joe Kennedy, was recently quoted as saying that there's more to being a senator, quote, than the way you vote and the bills that you file. And that sounds like a pretty misguided position to me. So my question would be, how would you respond to that? And what do you see as the important distinctions between yourself and Representative Kennedy? This job is about the way you vote in the bills that you file, but it is also about hearing the stories and experiences of your constituents and fighting for their values on the floor of the United States Senate. And that is exactly what I have done throughout my career. It's what I've done for the family of Lionel Rondon after their son was killed in the Merrimack Valley gas explosions and fires in 2018. And we're now close to signing into law the bill I named after him, Lionel Rondon with the safety protections to ensure a disaster like that never happens again anywhere in America. And that's why the mayor of Lawrence, Dan Rivera, uh, he knows that I show up for the people of Lawrence and that's why he's endorsed me because he knows that I will keep fighting to pass safety legislation to make sure that no other community ever experienced what Lawrence experience in this natural gas pipeline tragedy. And it's what I've done for all of the families of Massachusetts who are struggling with opioid addiction. I heard their stories uh, in the back of a Taunton church, and it's why I passed legislation to expand medication-assisted treatment so that more medical professionals can offer life-saving treatment. It's what I've done for Longmeadow, which cut the ribbon on a new, safer rail crossing after working with Amtrak and state officials to add warning lights and gates. Seven people were killed there. It was the most dangerous rail crossing in Massachusetts until those improvements uh, were in fact installed. It's, it's showing up for what I've done in uh, Weymouth in their fight against the natural gas compressor station that the people of those communities don't want to have built there. I heard this story. I introduced legislation to ban any compressor station that would serve as a throughway for fossil fuels to foreign markets. And showing up is what I've done for the residents of Plymouth who want to make sure that the Pilgrim nuclear power plant is shut down safely and that the nuclear waste is stored securely. So this job is about bills and votes, yes, but those bills and votes are inspired and fought for because of the stories and experiences of the families I, re I represent in Massachusetts. So I just wanted to thank you for having me on tonight. And, oh, thank uh, you so I, much I, for coming I, on, I, Senator I really Markey. Loved it. 
And thank you so much thank for all so the much. work that you're doing on behalf of uh, everyone, really, with climate change <laughs> and, yeah. you know, you. on behalf of uh, humanity. The planet. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it was just such a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, we wish you the best of luck with your campaign. We're going to be pulling really hard for you. And thank you. folks, please go donate to and volunteer for Senator Markey. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is your land.